0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. For those of you who haven't been with us, we, we're going through books of the Bible. We usually start at the beginning of a book and then go all the way through and see what God has to say as he gave it to the original author. Usually we're in the New Testament, just finished uh, the book of Acts and the book of Philemon, which was actually a little letter. Now we're, we're doing something kind of rare in the 12 years here at GBF, and that's going into the Old Testament during our main sermon preaching time. We've taught from Genesis and Sunday school in other contexts, but this is the first time in the Sunday morning. It's been a wonderful study. I'm thoroughly being challenged and edified as I do my own personal study in God's Word throughout the week, dusting off all of my Hebrew textbooks because usually I'm in the New Testament with the Greek language. So that's been fun. It's been challenging. It's been, we've done about four sermons in Genesis. We're already finished with verse one after four Sundays. We're going to go to verse two today. This is exciting. And on your outline, it says theoretically verses two through five. Don't let that fool you. But I have been, I've been getting some amazing feedback. In the first sermon, I did a survey of the whole book of Genesis you got to give me some credit there. That was 50 chapters, anyway, in one sermon. And I told you that I would welcome any questions as we go through, especially the first chapter and the first three, and I, you took me up on that. I received a lot of feedback, a lot of questions, thoroughly appreciated, good stuff, from the simple to the sublime and sophisticated and everything in between people who want to know practical answers, and others who are scientists and aspiring scientists who want to know more about the details of the science of all this stuff and the debate, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been fun. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Actually, the overwhelming feedback has been very positive. Thank God. Thank you, Pastor Cliff, for taking the time to preach to us from the book of Genesis, especially where we're at as a nation and also in the culture and also here in Northern California, which I've already talked about. Uh, where other worldviews dominate, and the biblical worldview is absolutely a major super-minority. And so let's continue in our study of God's Word. We're going to be looking at actually verses 1 through 5, which is a, a unit together, kind of like a paragraph of thought, as Moses wrote it, as he was superintended by the Holy Spirit of God, 1400 B.C., 2,400 years ago that Moses wrote this. God graciously has preserved it for us. It's amazing. Moses wrote it exactly how God wanted it, and we're going to look at it. It's still relevant and life-changing for us today. Uh, we are not delving off into major tangents, getting dragged down into the creation evolution debate, primarily. Or even the debate, the intramural debate that happens among Christians, and that's old earth, young earth kind of thing. So we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time. Really my focus is just on the text. What does Genesis say? How did God give it? What did God it's really what what did God say? That's what we're looking at. Not what does secular science say, what do secular humanists say, what do old earth people say, what do young earth people say? What does the Bible say? Which means what does God say? Isn't that that's refreshing? Well, what about this Bible teacher who disagrees and believes in all? No, let's, I don't care. Let's, what does the Bible say? What does God say? What does the Spirit of God say? What does Jesus say in His Word? That's where it needs to start. So that's going to be our focus and we will try not to deviate from that and be distracted. But we still welcome uh, all of your questions. Have you been sending them to me? So we can learn together. Um so again, we're, concentrating on what the text says, not what uh, secular science says. This is God's word. Genesis is not going to be, or at least I'm not going to subject the book of Genesis, God's word, and subject it to a humanistic, unbelieving, antagonistic litmus test. Scripture says don't test God. We don't have that prerogative. He's the sovereign creator. So, we're not going to do that. So, if you're, as we're going through and asking, if your main question is, where's the science in all this? Actually, that's the wrong question. It's not about human science here. The question is, what did God say? That's really the question. That's what we're trying to find out. Where's the science in all this? Well, that's actually not even a logical question because so far. This has really nothing to do with human science. we talked about that. In the the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We saw he created uh, everything out of nothing. That's a supernatural, unbelievable, mind-numbing miracle that defies human explanation or all human science. There is no scientific human explanation. It's a miracle of God. And I continue to be befuddled at Christians, real sincere Christians who, for whatever reason think that Genesis 1 through 11, 1 through 3, or chapter 1 needs to be subjected to the secular, humanistic, atheistic, unbelieving worldview and say it needs to pass the litmus test of secular science, which is a naturalistic worldview, an anti-supernaturalistic worldview. Yet at the same time, these same Christians, I'll, I'll ask them, well, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Well, yeah, of course, couldn't be a Christian if I didn't. Oh, okay. So you believe that Jesus... Real man was crucified, hung on the cross for six hours, blood draining out of his body over the course of a day. Then he died, and then they buried him, and he was in the grave for three days. And then he supernaturally, instantaneously rose again from the dead. You believe that? Literally, he rose from the dead bodily? Yes. And you believe Lazarus, who was dead for four days, rose again from the dead after rotting and being dead in the grave? Yeah, you believe that? You believe Jesus walked on the water literally? Yeah, you believe that Peter even walked on the water took a couple steps? Yeah, Yes, absolutely. Well, where's the science and all that? There is no science. Those are all supernatural, amazing. And so another question could be, what's more impossible? God creating the world out of nothing or God creating the world in six days or Lazarus being risen from the dead after being dead for four days? Which one is more difficult? Which one's more impossible? Which one is more unscientific? And that, well, it's, they're equal. So you can't just pick and choose what part of the Bible you're going to subject to a so-called secular worldview and unbelieving litmus test. So those are just reminders that we've hinted at already just to kind of give you the perspective by which we are studying Genesis. So let's go ahead. Uh, in answer to some of your questions, I've been getting a lot of questions about, Pastor Cliff, do you have any good resources on this regarding the science of the debate overall? And so we there are, and I wanted to just do a quick commercial of some of these. Okay, So if you are interested, maybe like last night at our wonderful fellowship event that we had at another local church there in Cupertino, a fellow believer said to me, you know, three years ago I didn't even know what young earth was. But they grew up in the church. Just terminology that they had never heard. So in other words, all they heard was one view and it was old earth, their whole life. That was a good reminder. I'm thinking, wow, there's but they're definitely interested in studying this issue. So uh, there are so many wonderful resources. When you read secular uh, materials, people who criticize the Bible, you get the impression that only the secular, unbelieving, old earth, evolutionary, big bang scientists are true scientists and everybody else. And there are no other scientists of a legitimate repute. believe otherwise. In other words, there are no Christians who who believe the Bible literally who are legit scientists, scientists, but that's just so not true. Uh, They just ignore uh, the evidence really and what's out there. So I would say if you are interested at all in studying this issue, Genesis from uh, a biblical point of view, but also a truly scientific point of view, there are are too many books for you to read. There is so much information and material. It's unbelievable. But I would say if you had to start somewhere and you've never done it, this is what I tell my seminary students in the Genesis class, is start with the Genesis flood, it's called. This is the 50th year anniversary of the Genesis flood. If you've never heard of it, if it's not in your library and you never have read it, I'd start with that one. It's thick. It's 500 pages. It's technical. It's dense, Hard, not hard reading, but it's a challenge. The Genesis flood, the biblical record and its scientific implications by John C. Whitcomb And Henry Morris, one of them is a Christian scientist, a real legit geologist, amazing, John Whitcomb. And then, uh, sorry, John Whitcomb is the theologian, and then Henry Morris is the scientist, and they collaborated. This is just an absolutely classic book. It's actually one of the best, most influential Christian books, probably in the 20th century, in my opinion, in terms of its influence. Uh, So start with that one, The Genesis Flood. When you finish that one, come back and ask me for another one. After, after reading this for a year, come back. I'll grill you on some questions and then see what other questions you have. I would definitely encourage you with that one. Uh, another one that's newer is called Coming to Grips with Genesis by about 10 or 12 authors. Some of these are out in the lobby, actually, available today. And then others, you can just get them on Amazon. Coming to Grips with Genesis, Biblical Authority in the Age of the Earth. This is a fantastic book by 10-plus Christian scholars. And this is a textbook I use in my Genesis class. So Austin and Bob know it very well, uh, by Terry Mortensen, Ph.D. geologist and the main, one of the main uh, scholars for Answers in Genesis for the last 17 years, Ken Hammond, that organization. Uh, he edited the book and wrote an amazing chapter in the Thane, year or another. So anyway, I would challenge you with that one. It's just absolutely fantastic, coming to grips with Genesis. And then if you want an easier read, oh, those are too many pages. that's oh, too much Hebrew grammar, Pastor Cliff. Okay, then go John MacArthur, The Battle for the Beginning, Creation, Evolution, and the Bible. This is when he preached on the first three chapters of Genesis over the course of 22 years. Okay, maybe it was just a couple of years. And then he summarized it in a very, very helpful book. So that's by John MacArthur, The Battle for the Beginning, another fantastic resource. And then out there there's a stack, yay, hi so many other different Christian scholars on different issues from every conceivable aspect. And you will be blessed. You will be challenged. If you have questions after the service, come up, ask me. I would encourage you to do that. Read it. You'll be edified. Your questions will be answered. The challenge is when you talk to somebody who just doesn't want to hear the evidence and you ask them, "Have have you ever read this material? And they'll usually say, no, they've never heard of it. So that is just good quality stuff. I'm reminded this week, The challenge, again, on this issue of the truthfulness and the straightforward approach of Genesis, that's just how we're taking it, seems so simple. A nine-year-old could read Genesis 1, and if they read it in face value, they could understand it. But that's the approach we're not encouraged to take, even by many Christians. And this week in my Genesis class, we Skyped in, as we do every semester, world-renowned Christian scholars. On whatever topic. And so we did it again this week, last Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesday. Um, so we had Dennis Lomero, he's a PhD. He has three doctorates one in dentistry, one in theology, and one in science. He's an associate pe- uh, professor of theology, but also an associate professor of paleontology at the University of Alberta in Canada. And for the third year in a row, he Skyped into my seminary class to talk with my guys after we read his book. He's, he says he's a Christian. And at the same time, he believes that Adam never existed. And he's written many books about it. And he preaches and teaches in churches and all over. He's very influential today, professing Christian. Adam didn't exist. Nothing in Genesis 1 through 11 was historical or ever existed. Uh, The Big Bang is true. And so he Skyped in so that my guys read his book. And then we do Q&A. Austin was in the class. And so we asked him. He's a fun guy. He's just got a great... Uh, personality he's fun to talk to totally disagree with everything he says but he's fun to talk to and so it's a great learning experience edifying experience he's highly educated he's incredibly confident in his opinions he just has a he's like an encyclopedia in terms of the massive data that he holds in his cerebrum so he's hard to debate and argue with that's why it's so challenging so my guys went around they asked him a question and when they were done then i asked him some questions again for the third year in a row and here's just one just to illustrate how difficult the debate could be. It says, Dennis, so how old is the universe? He said, well, we think it's around uh, 13.8 billion years old. Oh, okay. I knew he was going to say that. My next question. Dennis, so how do you know that the universe is 13.8 billion years old? And he said without blanking, well, you just do the math. Do the math. All right. Explain. Well, he's got, well, actually, I am not competent and educated enough to do the math. That's literally what he said. But I have a good friend who can. And he does the math, and that's what, it's, it's rock solid science. It's 13.8 billion years. That was his answer. How do you know the universe is 13.8 billion years old? Well, I don't know, but my friend does. That was his source of authority. So that's telling. And then my last question, uh, in this line of questioning, I said, so, you believe in the Big Bang? He said, yes. And I said, well, is the Big Bang a fact or is it theory? Oh, it's de- it, it is a fact. It's definitely a fact. It is a hard, cold fact. Again, it is rock-solid science. And then, he, again, he referred to his friend. You do the math. As a matter of fact, it's settled science. There, there, As a matter of fact, there is no debate on this. It is a closed question. There's no debate. Austin is my witness. That's what he said. There's no debate. And I said, well, that's not fair, Dennis. I mean, because I can say the same thing. That the universe is 6,000 years old and I could just dogmatically say there's no debate and then you and I wouldn't be talking today because we're here to debate. And he kind of laughed. What a way to end a debate. There's no debate. My opinion's right. No debate. End of discussion. Wow. That's not a debate. There's no facts. Anyway, so this was a world renowned, highly respected, uh, pro- proponent of this view that's making its way into the evangelical Christian world and that's his approach. And this is what we're confronted with. He does not want to get bogged down in the details of the Bible. He doesn't want to talk about the Hebrew and the syntax and the grammar and the context and all that stuff. Uh uh-uh. uh. There's a very specific strategy about how to do it. But well, anyway, but it was fun. It was edifying. And at the same time, my heart goes out to people like that because they're just from, day, from page one, verse one. They're not taking God at his word. So let's do that. Let's go on to day one of creation. Verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. One day. Go ahead and look at your outline there. There's no way to really nicely outline these five verses. This is a narrative passage. Moses is writing it. It's not meant to be put into an outline like I have here, but hopefully this just helps us go through the passage point by point so we can wrap our brain around it. And so there's my five proposed points that are where Moses is arguing for what God created on day one primarily, and that is light. We're going to see that. But let's go ahead and look at point number one there in this amazing, deep, deep passage. Like I said, theoretically, I was going to try to do two through five, but it is so rich. There is so much there that uh, we might not get past one. I'm just warning you because it's so important. Let me, let me tell you why it's so important. Point number one, the confusion. The confusion about, this is actually just one confusion. There are many confusions, but here's one main dominant confusion that reigned supreme in the evangelical Christian world at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s and actually trickled uh, and had an effect over the course of a good 50 plus years in the 1900s in the Christian world. And even some of its residue is can be found in pockets of evangelical Christianity, especially in uh, Europe here in America today, and that's the gap theory. The confusion, no gap theory, gap, G-A-P, gap theory. Maybe some of you have never even heard of the gap theory. And I can briefly just tell you what it is. No gap theory. The syntax, the grammar, the Hebrew, the context, the theology forbids any kind of a gap theory. It's absolutely, categorically, unbiblical. And clearly so. If you, I think, if you know the Hebrew text and study it and are honest. So I just want to share that with you, and it's vitally important. So in 1814, there was a liberal Presbyterian, probably not saved, pastor slash theologian, compromiser at the time, who probably got saved later after being a pastor for many years, Thomas Chalmers, C-H-A-L-M-E-R-S. In 1814, he formally proposed a position that can be known as the gap theory. 1814, the gap theory was invented. 1814, the gap theory was invented. And this was by a Christian. This was by a pastor. I don't even know if he knew Hebrew. In my studies, there's no indication that he did, really. And he had been influenced. He was basically a byproduct of his culture. He lived in a day and age... In the early 1800s, when there was a scientific revolution that was taking place, really beginning in the 1500s, growing in the 1600s, coming to full bloom in the 1700s. Some people call it the age of reason. And that was when, what was the age of reason? Well, that was European philosophers and scientists who basically were bucking the system of tradition Centuries on end of tradition of how we approach science and thought about things and thought about creation, origins, God, the world. And they were critical thinkers. They were philosophers. They were scientists in various different fields of science. And they began to smash the foundations and underpinnings of the way most people thought about things, particularly the origins of the world and the universe, i.e., there was a God, he was a creator, he created and made all things. That's where we came from. Well, they went against the grain and they began questioning everything, questioning authority, questioning religion, questioning the Bible, questioning Christianity, questioning uh, the humanity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the existence of Jesus, the veracity of the Bible, the stories in the Bible, the Noahic flood, how things were created, six-day creation, just criticizing everything, critiquing everything and they were called naturalists. Naturalists, meaning they believe everything operates according to the laws of nature. In other words, they didn't believe in miracles. They denied the possibility of miracles. They're anti-supernaturalists. So they have to explain everything under the purview or from the perspective that, okay, presupposition number one is miracles are impossible. Preposition number two, God doesn't exist. Therefore, we interpret everything before us in light of those two presuppositions, natural law and my brain. So it was rather arrogant because it depended upon the autonomy of human reason, which is fallen, finite, warped, corrupt, and naturally in antithesis towards God the Creator. They aren't interested in the truth. We know that. If you're not born again you're not a Christian, you're not really interested in ultimate truth. As a matter of fact, Romans 1 is very clear, the Apostle Paul said. They know the truth, yet they deny the truth, and even worse, they don't want the truth. They suppress the truth is the phrase that Paul uses. And that, so these were these scientists and philosophers. Uh, John Calvin in the 1500s began to, oh, sniff that it was coming. He even said that in his institutes. Oh, we have, we have imposters. We have people. We have so-called scientists and philosophers proposing and saying ridiculous things like Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. Moses didn't write Genesis. There was no flood. Creation didn't happen the way. So he hinted at that. Then that became full bloom in the 1600s with these Very critical, philosophical scholars, depending upon their own brain, their own reason, their own authority, defying centuries of tradition. And in the 1600s, they began to become famous because they were writing books on these various things, calling themselves scientists and philosophers. And if you got a book published in those days in the 1600s, that was very influential, very impactful, because it was hard to publish a book, a bona fide real book. And they were experts. They were scientists. They had credentials. Spinoza would be one of the most significant ones in the 1600s who began this spread of very critical thinking that would eventually impact simple things like the credibility of the book of Genesis. Baruch Spinoza. And then in the 1700s, like I said, it came to full bloom during this, what is called the age of reason, the autonomy of man's certitude as the ultimate authority of ultimate questions, even the origin of the universe, the origin of humanity, and even the date of when it happened. And so, Thomas Chalmers, the Presbyterian pastor in 1814, lived in this culture where there was, like I said, a scientific revolution. A different paradigms were emerging about how to pursue science, what true science was from cosmology and astronomy and geology especially now began and was on the rise, didn't exist before as a science or discipline. And so here's Thomas Chalmers just hearing it from every conceivable angle. He was getting fake news everywhere he went. And you can't help but be influenced sometimes when you're just getting fake news or untruth when it's in every venue of your entire life and it's the most popular thing and it's everything that everybody's talking about. It's what all the academies, especially in the universities, endorse as this is true education, this is true academia. You need to know this. This is how it really is. And he's just, one, I'm using him because he was one pastor of many pastors who were influenced this way to compromise. And he got intimidated. Oh, well, we... Almost embarrassed of, oh, yeah, ooh, the Bible. Yeah, that's kind of silly. Noah on the ark for a year with all those animals. Yeah, how silly. Adam was made from a pile of dirt. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that is kind of silly. A snake that talks. Yeah, ooh, a woman being made out of a man's rib. Wow, that's kind of silly. That's not scientific at all. That's true. Wow, that's embarrassing. Wow, got to re-explain this somehow. Got to accommodate all these smart guys in the 1700s. And so the guys that had the biggest impact in that day and eventually that even had a major impact on Charles Darwin culminating in 1859 with this book, were some of these philosophers and scientists in Europe. And three in particular I just want to mention. Uh, They were French scholars, very famous. And the reason they became famous and influential is because they published a book that became like a bestseller in its day, which, again, back in the 1700s, very difficult to do compared to today where anybody and their mother and their mother's uncle can go on the Internet and be published, really. Publish a book, publish a blog, and have your say. That was not true back then. So the first guy, Georges Louis Leclerc Comte de Buffon. I am not kidding. That's the best French I could do. That is his full name, George. We'll just call him George. George, not Buffon. It's Buffon, B-U-F-F-O-N. And he was a French naturalist. Has a problem with miracles. He was a mathematician by training and expertise. Wrote a book called *Epics of Nature*, very influential. In 1779, he came out proposing that the Earth was 75,000 years old. That was radical in his day. The Earth was 75,000 years old. That was going against the wave of what everybody was saying in his day. 75,000 years old. Now he's kind of a lying, because in his unpublished dissertation. He proposed that the earth was actually 3 million years old. But he knew, man, nobody's going to buy that. They're not going to accept that. That is too radical. So he toned it down and said 75,000. So this is in the late 1700s. And it made a splash. And he explicitly rejected Noah's flood. And get this. He proposed that the first living matter as we know it spontaneously generated. Whoa. One moment there was nothing and poof! Now there's everything. Hmm, sounds familiar? Then at the same time, also in France, not a mathematician, but a professional astronomer, his name was Pierre Laplace. Astronomer wrote the exposition of the system of the universe in 1796. That also made a big splash, and he proposed what is called the nebular hypothesis. Some of you have probably heard of that. What is that? Well, Uh, The solar system, as we know it, at one time was a hot spinning gas cloud. And then it took long ages and millions of years to finally cool down. And when it cooled down, poof, we have the Milky Way galaxy. I mean, this is new, crazy stuff when they wrote it. They're just pulling stuff out of thin air. These are just ideas. There's Zippo evidence, no experimentation, no way to prove it. Who knows where they're getting this stuff from. But it stuck. And it influenced a lot of people and actually... This guy's view is the basis of Big Bang cosmology today. That was in 1779. Okay, one more French guy. I love this name. Jean-Baptiste Pierre-Antoine de Monet-Chevalier de la That's his full name. French naturalist. Oh, doesn't believe in miracles. He was a trained biologist. He wrote Philosophy of Zoology in 1809. It was released. And his main proposition was he proposed that biological evolution... Takes place over long periods of time. That was in 1809. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's what Charles Darwin talked about. Charles Darwin did not invent evolution. He got it from his predecessors, like guys like this. So, anyway, they took the world by storm. There was a new way of thinking. There was a new way to do science. There was a new uh, talk in the academies. There was a new place you had to go to get prestige, to be respected, to be a true scholar especially in the universities and the academy. And this just became the preponderance of thought, dominated everything. And then, as it always does, what's going on in the academies eventually trickles down into among the normal people like us, into the seminaries, into the churches, into the pews, sometimes into our very own lives. And that's what happened. So Pastor Thomas Chalmers, he's just kind of a byproduct of what was going on and being promoted in his lifetime and where he lived in Europe and bought into it wholesale. But at the same time, thought he was a Christian, wanted to believe, you know, wanted to recover the Bible somehow. Okay, what do I do? I want to believe all this secular science is so impressive. And by the way, who am I to question these secular geologists, astronomers, and mathematicians? They're the professionals. They know everything. I can't go toe-to-toe with them. They must be right. They're, they have PhDs. And it conflicts with what the Bible says at face value. So they accommodate and compromise. They integrate. Integrate Bible with secular, humanistic, secular, atheistic, destructive science. So-called science, I should say. In the words of 1 Timothy 6, so-called science. And you come up with a hodgepodge that's very confusing and not true to science or the Bible. And that's what Thomas Chalmers did with the gap theory. So he invents this gap theory. and, And what is rationale? What was the gap theory? Well, look at your Bible. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so at one time, in the way distance past, probably millions and zillions of years ago, actually for Thomas Chalmers, it was hundreds of thousands of years ago, maybe 200,000 years ago, as B.B. Warfield thought, God created everything. And in that original creation, God didn't create Adam and Eve or humans like we know them. They were pre-Adamic beings, humanoid kind of things, kind of like cavemen. That's why we have skeletons of cavemen. And angels, uh, demons actually, angels were created and then demons fell and Satan was created and then he took his place. And then Satan basically, him and his demons dominated all of creation. They took over the world. They caused all this sin and destruction. God got really mad. And so God destroyed that original creation. It just wiped it out totally and eradicated all living things. So that got to a point where there was nothing at all alive, not even plants and animals. And these pre-Adamic cavemen-like beings were all killed and destroyed, and God judged it. And then it just kind of laid vacant for a while with no life to be found anywhere on this planet Earth that God had originally created. And then God decided, oh, you know what? I think I should do it all over again. Let me create a new kind of uh, hominid, humanoid, whatever you want to call them, and we'll call them uh, Adam and Eve. And we'll go to plan B because plan A didn't work. So In verse two is actually a separate creation. It's a new creation, and between the gap of chapter one, verse one and verse two, there's a gap. There's a gap of a lot of time, and it's a gap of two hundred thousand plus years or so. Maybe one hundred seventy-five thousand years happened between verse one and verse two. That's the gap theory, and that's what this pastor promoted, and that caught on like crazy and wildfire in the Christian evangelical community because. It allowed Christians who wanted to be true to the Bible and who wanted to take the rest of Genesis 1 literally, that it did happen in six days. And at the same time, they can say okay to the secular geologist who's trying to, as he points to a rock, and says this rock is 75,000 years old. Oh, okay, well, I can believe that, and I can believe the Bible too. Because the secular geologist says, I need 75,000 years somewhere. I'll just shove that in between verses 1 and 2. And voila, Problem solved. That was the gap theory. That became one of the most dominant Christian views. And the likelihood, if you were a Christian and you were living in the early 1900s and you were like a mainstream evangelical, like you believed in the Bible and miracles and Jesus and all that stuff, and the inerrancy of Scripture, you probably it was very likely you would have been a gap theory person. Really, that's how dominant it was. It was so dominant that in uh, 1909, C.I. Schofield, who helped start Dallas Seminary, he wrote his study Bible, the the Schofield Study Bible. Still around today, I have one the notes on the bottom he held to the gap theory he was not a bible teacher bible scholar didn't know hebrew but he just bought onto this gap theory he put it in the footnotes of his bible on genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and then promoted the gap theory he said quote jeremiah 426 through 23 through 26 and various other passages clearly indicate that the earth had undergone a cataclysmic change as the result of a divine judgment the face of the earth bears everywhere the marks of such a catastrophe. What was Schofield saying? Well, if you look at the Grand Canyon uh, and the rocks there, they definitely are obviously millions of years old. Today it's millions. Back then it was hundreds of thousands of years old. And we've got to do something with that hundreds of thousands of years. So let's stick it in between verse 1 and 2 in the gap there where it conveniently fits. Then we can take the rest of the Bible literally. That was the gap theory. It was in his uh, best-selling Bible uh, study Bible, the Schofield Study Bible. And then it just took the Christian church by storm. And probably was one of the main views held by Christians throughout the 1900s. So much so that when I was teaching at another church back in the uh, 2000s, yeah, 15 years ago or so, teaching at a pretty significant uh, Baptist church, conservative Baptist church, and I taught for several weeks on Genesis. And I remember the first time I taught on Genesis chapter 1 and just took it at face value uh, when I was done after teaching. Uh, of what Genesis said at face value and how old the earth was according to Genesis chapter 5 and chapter 11 and Luke chapter 3, I was cornered. I was uh, not mauled. um, But anyway, (laughs) so there's like 70 people in the class and I was just confronted after class and all these folks, several of them had Schofield study Bibles and they're telling me, no, uh, the earth is millions of years old, billions of years old and the gap theory was true and it's right there in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and because that's what they had been told. And these were dear saints, love the Bible, love Jesus. And I just asked them one question. Oh, you believe in the gap theory? Oh, okay, so we're supposed to put billions of years old in there? Okay. Do, you, have you, do any of you know Hebrew? Silence. None of them did. And I said, well, it actually matters <laughs> because the Hebrew argues against any idea of a gap theory. But they didn't. Uh, for the most part, that was not uh, coercive. They, they were older saints. They'd been around a long time. So they were pretty much settled in their convictions. So that was just a reminder of how still real that view is and held by many Christians, and they think it's the answer to bring harmony between secular science and their zillions of years and still trying to hold on to the inerrancy and face value approach of Scripture. And I would just say, no, that doesn't work. The gap theory is not true, never was, and it's not allowed by Scripture. And let me just Share some, some of you could very well have been a gap theory person at one point in your life. I wouldn't be surprised. We've got 200 people here today. Uh, some of you may have been a gap theory person. It could very well be that some of you still coming today were a gap theory person. That's understandable if I were to hear your story. And I don't want to hurt your feelings, but let's go ahead and see what the Bible has to say. I, and I just want to run through, according to the Bible, why the gap theory is not legit and just put that to the rest, for, at least for us, uh, once and for all. And by the way, what's the motive of having a gap theory if you're a Christian? Again, it's trying to reconcile what secular science supposedly has to say about what they say is fact. Remember, it's the theory of evolution. It's a theory, not a scientific law. The theory of evolution, the theory, the Big Bang Theory, what it's called, they forget that. We're told it's law, we're told it's fact, we're told it's settled science. It's not. But anyway, here's just a few reasons of why the gap theory is impossible. Uh, number one, this is, uh, the, the gap theory is impossible historically. It's historically impossible. Why do I say that? Well, because Moses wrote Genesis chapter 1 in 1400 BC. Do the math here. Like my friend Dennis said, do the math. Moses wrote Genesis chapter 1 in 1400 BC. Literally, Moses did. Jesus said so. Moses wrote this passage in 1400 BC, and the gap theory wasn't invented until 1814. You get it? So that means 3,200 years after Moses wrote this passage, the gap theory was invented. So a good question to ask folks that believe in the gap theory is, do you think Moses believed in the gap theory? They, they can't say yes because it was in, eight, in 1814 it was invented. Moses did not believe in the gap theory. Moses didn't know the gap theory. So that's the historical reason why the gap theory is impossible. Number two. Uh, the gap theory is impossible textually. Here's the textual reason. Moses, when he wrote Genesis, Moses did not write with chapter and verse breaks. He didn't write in English. He wrote in some kind of Aramaic slash Hebrew script, and he didn't write verses. He didn't go, okay, verse 1, stop, period, verse 2. Moses didn't do that. It was continuous. There were no number breaks. They wrote kind of in paragraph thoughts so one and two go together so the numerical break that you see in your english bible between genesis chapter one verse one and genesis chapter one verse two is an artificial break it's not real it's not there so that's the textual reason why the gap theory is impossible moses didn't write in verses like that number three the gap theory is impossible because of a practical reason well what's that Well, the gap theory was invented to accommodate secular scientists' speculations in the 1700s that the earth was hundreds of thousands of years old, or 75,000 to a couple hundred thousand years old. Chalmers, okay, I need to squeeze in a couple hundred thousand years somewhere, that'll take care of it. Well, practically why that doesn't work today is because now it's the same secular scientists or at least their kin, are telling us that the earth is now 4.5 billion years old. So now guess how many years you got to squeeze in between verse 1 and 2. It's not 75,000 years anymore. It's 4.5 billion years. And 4.5 billion years ain't going to fit in that verse, in that gap. So that's the practical reason. Number four, philosophically, the gap theory is not true. The gap theory was invented to get secular scientists to respect Christianity academically. Unbelie- trying to get them to... Respect the Bible, but the answer they don't. You know what secular, unbelieving people think of Christianity and the Bible? According to the Apostle Paul, foolish, idiotic, moronic, uneducated. You're not going to impress them. It has to be a heart change from Almighty God and His Spirit and the truth of His gospel. That is the only thing that will open their heart and release the blinders. So that is futile to try to just compromise, trying to win over an unbeliever. They think we're foolish. Uh, that's a philosophical reason. Number five, this is a theological reason why the gap theory doesn't work. The gap theory was wielded by theologians, Christian pastors mostly, that's the sad thing, with the hope of getting pagan scientists to believe the Bible, and they don't. So that's very similar to the other one. They were trying to gain academic credibility, and here it's just trying to win them over to the faith. That doesn't work. And then finally, six and seven are grammatical Hebrew reasons, very clearly. If you know Hebrew and you study it, plain as day, the gap theory is totally impossible. Number six, the gap theory is syntactically untenable, impossible. The syntax of the passage. Try to stay with me here. You ready? I'll use some big words and explain it. Chapter 1, verse 2 begins with a literary device or a rhetorical device called anaphora. A-N-A-P-H-O-R-A. Ana is a preposition. A-N-A means several things. Here it means again. Anaphora. What's an anaphora? Well, it's when uh, the beginning... It begins this sentence the way the last one ended. Here's a simple way to say it. Look at the end of verse 1. What's the last word? Earth. What's the last word in the Hebrew text of verse 1? Earth. Eretz. Last word. What's the first word of verse 2? Earth. So at the end of verse 1, you have earth. Beginning of verse 2, you have earth. They're connected with a conjunction called a wow or a vav. It's one letter, the W in Hebrew, connecting like a hinge on the door. So verse 1 and verse 2 are connected like a hinge on the door. Now, when you go through a door, where where do you walk through? Do you walk through the side with the hinges? No, because you'll hurt your nose. You open the hinge and you go through the gaping hole where the hinges are not. The place where the hinges join, you can't fit any space in there. That's exactly what's going on syntactically in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 are connected with a grammatical hinge called a vav or a w or a conjunction, or a vav disjunctive, it's called. What's that? Uh, it's a wow or a vav with a noun and not a verb. I know it's confusing. But anyway, if you know Hebrew, it's very clear. Just know that Genesis 1 and 2 is a hinge, and the literary rhetorical device that we use in English, we call it anaphora, and it's what one sentence ends with, the other begins with, and here's the purpose of that hinge that Moses put. The, Moses was highly educated. He had the greatest education on planet Earth at the time, raised in the palace of the Pharaoh, maybe even christened to someday be the new Pharaoh. So we know he was the most highly educated man on planet Earth, possibly. And he was inspired and moved along, I should say, by the Holy Spirit of God to write down exactly what God wanted him to. And so he did this on purpose. Moses did. And if you knew Hebrew, you knew what was going on. So this anaphora, this hinge with the substantive erets that's earth, joined by a wild disjunctive or a simple conjunction forming a hinge, preserving airtight, hermeneutically sealed continuity of thought between the first sentence and the second sentence. Earth at the end of the first sentence and earth at the beginning of the second sentence cannot be separated. Why? As one Hebrew scholar says, quote, to focus attention on this noun, eretz, or earth, for the rest of the section up to chapter 2, verse 3, end quote. So what is the purpose of this literary device that's being used intentionally? Well, notice in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what did God create? The heavens and the earth. Well, look at verse 2. Well, the earth was formless and void. Well, he's talking about the earth, but he's not talking about heaven anymore. Why is that? He had two nouns or two nominals, heavens and earth. And then in verse 2, it's just, why is he talking just about the earth? Because he wants to focus only on the earth. That's why That's why it's connected that way, with the hinge. Okay, we talked about God created all things, including the heavens, angels and everything else that is included in the heavens, and the earth. But I want to talk about the earth. I want to focus on the earth. And that's why the rest of the chapter in Genesis chapter 1 is only about the earth, primarily. It does refer to the heavens, sun, moon, and stars on day four, only in relation to how it affects people living on earth. So from God's point of view, the earth is the stage of human drama and all of human history. The earth is. I'm not saying that the earth is the epicenter of all of created universe, but what I am saying, it is the center stage from God. what God wants to accomplish in that which he created. So we don't live in a heliocentric universe from God's point of view in terms of what he's trying to accomplish man was not created for the sun the sun was created for humanity on day four we're going to see that and so that's why when he introduces heavens and earth he's just now I want to focus on the earth that's the beginning of verse two so let's stay let's talk about the earth and then the use of the verb very simple Uh, verse this is number seven So this would be grammatically, the gap theory is impossible in terms of Hebrew grammar. It says, the earth was. Okay, the was is a verb. With me so far? Yeah. And it's a simple verb, and it's a perfect tense. And that means it's a completed state of reality in the past. And it didn't go through a process to get created. That's the point. It didn't undergo a new process being fashioned and created from something else. It was a state of being. So in the beginning, God created everything. Boom, like a big pile of clay, Really? An un, a mass of clay, unformed and uninhabitable. That's the way, that's Genesis 1-1. It doesn't have sin, but it's unformed. Big mass of clay, water all over it, light hasn't been created yet, a bunch of darkness, and over the course of six days, God is going to fashion this beautiful, or this piece of clay, and give it form, and then after He gives it form, in the last three days of creation, He's going to inhabit it with living beings. Plants, animals, humans. That's what God is doing here. So he's focusing on the earth. And so the verb was, just a simple Hebrew word was, argues against the gap theory. This isn't about becoming and thousands of years happening before. No, this is the state of existence when God instantaneously, out of nothing, brought into the existence all of reality as we know it. I know that's a mouthful and a mindful, but I just wanted to throw it out there for you to be aware that there are legitimate, bona fide, real, substantial reasons in the text itself that argue against really i'd say silly compromises and theories like that because since the gap theory it's like every generation some christian is coming up with some new kooky theory to accommodate the crazy secular opinions of zillions of years and at the same time trying to mix it so i can still hold on and believe my bible so i don't look like an idiot from the so-called scientists because i take it at face value and i believe it literally and it's one after the other and it's after the gap theory, there was the day-age theory that came in the 1820s. Same thing. Another pastor, another well-meaning pastor, trying to not be embarrassed by his Bible and invents what's called the day-age theory. Then the framework hypothesis theory. And then uh, punctuated all this other stuff. So we're going to talk a little bit about that stuff. But point being, you can believe your Bible at face value. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And go to verse 2. The earth was formless and void. And so there is no gap theory. That is impossible. The confusion, no gap theory. Point number two, the condition. What was the condition when God created everything instantaneously by the power of his word? Well, initially, the condition based on verse 1 and 2, especially the beginning of verse 2, the condition, was the earth was uninhabitable. So God created, like I said, a big chunk of clay, formless and void, It wasn't ready to have people on it. People couldn't be sustained. There was no sun yet. Plants. It was covered in water, by the way, totally submerged in water. Humans couldn't even live on the land at that point. So what God's going to do, like I said, for the first three days, God takes this piece of clay and he forms it so that it can become habitable. Then in the last three days, he's actually going to fill the earth, that which has been made. So that's actually a beautiful outline for Genesis chapter 1. Starting with chapter 1 verse 2 where it says the earth was formless and void. Formless without form, big piece of clay, not ready to be inhabited yet. And then void literally means empty. There's nobody living on it yet. So it needs to be formed first and then after it's formed, then there can be living creatures on it. And so the first three days correspond to the formless word, where God's going to form it into a living environment. And then uh, the second word, void, corresponds with the last three days of creation, where God literally fills that which he has formed. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And only the Spirit of God could have directed Moses to write it so succinctly, so beautifully this way and at the same time so powerfully. And actually it's consistent with modern-day science in many ways. We can't get into that now. but uh, So with that, number two, the condition, the earth is uninhabitable. And next week we're going to pick up and just go into a little more detail as to how, why it was uninhabitable and how God made it habitable and able for humans to live on it as the earth. Yes, the earth and humanity are at center stage of God's creation. Everything I'd say in the universe was created for man, including the planets, the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of the animals, because God intended humans to be God's vice regent to rule on his behalf on earth. And God hasn't changed that mandate for us. And if you're a Christian, you have the beautiful privilege to be a steward of God on earth today, to be a vice regent on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth today with the greatest message in the world, and that is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't end in this life because in the next life, we will continue to be vice regents of the Lord Jesus Christ, ruling beside him for all eternity. That is exciting. And it's only true of those who know Jesus Christ, our Lord. And let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and the privilege we have uh, to be with your people. Thank you for your word, the Bible, the scriptures that are so incredibly rich. Sometimes it's difficult, but you you told us that. That's why we need your help. We need humility. We need teachability. We need discernment. We need the spirit of God. We need others to teach us. We need time. We need prayer. We are utterly dependent upon you to fully understand the amazing truth of your word. And yet your promise to us as your children is that we will be able to understand with clarity the truth of your word. And we know it's going to change our lives. We give you all the glory for it, all the praise. We thank you. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.